0: I think there needs to be a pretty careful thinking through about how we do camouflage, how we do deception, uh, what a modern combined force is in terms of uh, how units support each other to mitigate some of these vulnerabilities. Air defense is no longer something that a higher echelon puts in a location and it covers an area localized air defense and layers of air defense mean that that capability has to be absolutely integrated into the planning cycle of how a battle group moves around
1: hey welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast I'm John Amble editorial director at MWI and my guest on this episode is dr. Jack Watling. he is research fellow for land warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, a British think tank. He has been watching the Caucasus region closely over the past few weeks as conflict has broken out between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh territory. In particular, he has drawn insights from that conflict about ground combat on the modern battlefield, specifically combined arms operations and the role of tanks. He discusses, for example, the saturation of the battlefield with a variety of sensors, challenges associated with electronic warfare, and the importance of camouflage. These are all things that the U.S. military and those of its allies haven't really encountered during nearly two decades of military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, which makes the lessons he discusses especially important. It is a fascinating conversation that I hope you enjoy. Before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't already subscribed to the MWI podcast, be sure to do so. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, anywhere you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Jack Watley. Jack, thank you so much for joining this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: And thank you especially for coming on such short notice Um I shot you a note, you know, not more than about a day ago, asking you to come on the podcast, and I did so based on an article that you uh, that you wrote that was published at RUSI, where you work um, just a handful of days ago, where you looked at the sort of recently reignited conflict surrounding Nagorno Karabakh in the Caucasus, and kind of derived some lessons uh, for land warfare broadly, but also more specifically for combined arms maneuver and and for the role of armored platforms on kind of the modern battlefield. I wonder if you can kind of explain uh, what it was when you looked at that uh, conflict unfolding and and saw it as kind of a useful source for these sorts of lessons.
0: Uh, Sure. So, I mean, I think the first thing I just have to flag is that I'm not an expert on the region. Uh, Emily Ferris covers that uh, at RUSI, but there has been an ongoing debate uh, tied to an ongoing review of British military capability that's happening here about the future of armour. Um, And for us, that is very much driven by cost, uh, what we can afford, and therefore how we envisage armor being used on the future battlefield. So this was kind of a a discussion that we were living day in, day out, both in public debates in the press, but also uh, in Army HQ, lots of discussion about what armor needs to be able to do on the battlefield. Um, And then we started seeing a very large amount of footage coming out uh, of tanks being knocked out, um, which... You know, we have also seen in Syria, um, but in Syria, I would say the capabilities that were being uh, employed by Assad's forces were somewhat less sophisticated than those that have been demonstrated by both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, And at the same time, there's been this kind of quite unhelpful drones versus tanks discussion, quite, you know, um, top Trump's style debate that has rumbled on for a couple of years now. And this seemed to get at the crux of how these things interact.
1: Can you kind of explain that, you know, sorry for interjecting, but can you, what, what do you mean by this drones versus tanks debate?
0: Uh, so, I mean, I think that the big issue is that um, in terms of air forces, you know, traditionally you get air superiority in a, sequen- in a sequential kind of campaign. And once you have that, you can start plinking enemy armor if they try and maneuver, especially during the day, etc. cetera. Um, what most armed forces have started to run into except for the US and China, um, and potentially Russia, although they use their air force quite differently, is a mass problem, whereby um, the size of air fleets that we have now in order to be able to have a competitive airframe means that you can generate so few at the pointy end uh, that A, they are quite vulnerable, even to fairly middle range or low end air defense systems, but B, they are not able to deliver a comparable effect on the battlefield. Um, So that's been a gap that has been increasingly expanding for for forces. At the same time, uh, drones have, uh, you know, an anti-tank guided missiles and the fact that they can get onto the battlefield means that armor is very vulnerable. Um, And the fact that we have relied on air superiority for the last three decades, arguably, um, and expected to have it, means that we haven't invested in air defense systems. So there's a gap in our capability. And at the same time, tanks come with a huge logistical burden to deploy. So, if you are operating globally, trying to project power, trying to be nimble, uh, trying to invest in new capabilities that you think are promising, there's this ongoing debate about: Do we need tanks? Because uh, can't we have penetrating UAVs uh, with ATGMs that the tanks can't knock out um, that are going to, you know, clear the battlefield of our enemies? Um, and I present it in those quite simplistic terms because I think it, you know, there's there's been a, a tendency for people to get quite fanboyish about one capability or the other um, rather than seeing these things as a system of capabilities that needs to interact together. Um, And so, and so that, that's why I kind of frame it as tanks versus drones because certainly in countries other than the U S there is a real financial pressure in what do we invest in and modernize uh, and we can't afford to do it with everything. So do we modernize in these future capabilities that seem very promising and use that investment to try and address say the weakness of the control link between a UAV and the control station which could mean that it's not viable for high-end conflict or do we try and modernize our armored fleets which are legacy equipment we know they're increasingly vulnerable but they're also the tanks we have are also becoming uh, too old so when it's framed in that very difficult resource constraint environment um, it becomes quite a one or other debate um, and this conflict has in some ways broken that because what we're seeing is uh, one side that is quite effectively integrating some of those new capabilities with ground maneuver elements and traditional capabilities, and another side that is falling victim to that.
1: And presumably the the, uh, the side that is sort of doing that integration is the Azerbaijanis because your article... Yes. Um, it's sort of centered on uh, this single data point that the Armenians had lost 42 of their T-72 tanks, which is not a small number. Um, so given that the Azerbaijanis are doing a better job of integrating new capabilities with some of the more traditional ground combat capabilities, are we seeing kind of an imbalance in terms of not just maybe tank kills, but perhaps other metrics as well?
0: Uh, yes, potentially quite an exaggerated imbalance. So on the 27th of September, that's when this started, it appears to be uh Azerbaijan that started it. Um, And that was a combination of ground maneuver to seize some critical terrain features, combined with uh, a quite extensive set of precision strikes across the deep um, that targeted Armenian armor, air defense systems, uh, command posts, uh, logistics capability, that kind of thing. Um, So you know, the traditional targets that you would go after. Um, It is since Developed into one where there is a lot of exchange of long range fires, not necessarily very precision fires, but we've also seen a persistent use of UAVs to strike uh, enemy armor. So in terms of videos that have been published, I think I'm now tracking more than 80 uh, T-72s that have been knocked out of varying vintages that have been knocked out from Armenia.
1: Um, That's an extraordinary number.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are individual cases where we can verify that that they're separate videos. Um which is, you know, that's a a lot of armor to lose in the space of time. Um, On the flip side, it's worth noting that the Armenians haven't been publishing uh, the same amount of output. Uh, There has been a huge amount of misinformation being published, both sides claiming that they've knocked out various things. And it is very clear that uh, Azerbaijan has also taken pretty heavy losses, including in armor. Um, We've only got videos of, of, I think, just over 20. But it's, we, should, we know that it's higher than that. Mainly, it's been to ATGMs, and mainly it has happened when Azerbaijan has gone on the offensive. So you would actually you would expect them to take a fairly significant number of losses, given the terrain, the fact that the Armenians have you know know the terrain and have built in defensible positions, um, and the fact that they're on the offensive. So you, you would expect the you would expect the imbalance in casualties to be flipped around. But actually, it seems to have quite strongly favoured Azerbaijan so far. Um, I think yesterday, the Armenians admitted to over 500 dead so far.
1: Wow. And so is that imbalance solely a function of Azerbaijan just having better capabilities?
0: In terms of the the, uh, baseline capabilities, both are fairly similar. Um, The uh, Armenians have pretty modern um, manpads, fairly modern ATGMs, mainly Russian-supplied uh, and have a certain number of modernized platforms, but you're still talking a couple of decades in terms of in terms of where their capability is at, uh, out from cutting edge capability. Um, in terms of Azerbaijan, there's a similar baseline across their forces, but they also have uh, a fair number of Turkish and Israeli made. Higher-end UAVs and loitering munitions, um, and then both sides have purchased a certain number of uh, things like tos One A, so the thermobaric uh, multiple launch rocket launcher that the Russians make, uh, including the more modern variant, um, and also a few long-range MLRS on both sides that have been, um, yeah, modernized. So, so there's a there's a real mixture of capability. Um, what's interesting is that uh, it's how they're employing it. So. Uh, Armenia has, for well, since the 1980s, afflicted probably more casualties on the Azerbaijanis, most times that there have been clashes over the last three decades. Um, but that has almost always been tactical engagements, quite small scale. Um, and what we've seen in this case is that uh, while the Armenians have done quite credibly when they've been in contact at the tactical level, They are taking very, very persistent uh, attrition in the rear and in the deep. Um, And so my expectation would be that their performance in the tactical kind of uh, close battle is going to deteriorate um, over time. Whereas Azerbaijan has quite clear objectives. It knows what it's pushing for and it hasn't suffered that same level of attrition in depth.
1: So I wanna ask you um, about a few things that you kind of specifically highlight In your article, one of them is um, the presence of censors on the battlefield, um, both in this context of of the fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, but also more generally on the modern battlefield. Um, You know, if we use like the Battle of 73 Easting um, in 1991 as kind of a point of comparison, because it was kind of really the last major armored force on force fight that the U.S. military has uh, taken part in. How much more saturated is the battlefield of today with sensors than it was, say, thirty years ago?
0: So I think we have to be we we have to distinguish between uh, sub-peer and peer adversaries when we talk about the sensor issue. Um, certainly, what we've seen in among Armenian troops is uh, not an appreciation of the level of threat overhead. Right, there are a lot of videos now of infantry dismounting from trucks and standing around behind around the truck, even though they are. A fairly long way from the front line. They clearly don't think they're under threat and then they get hit. Uh, soldiers, you know, getting out of their trench to, to, uh, urinate, um, and then coming back to the trench. And as they get back under their camouflage screens being hit. Um, so there is a lack of awareness by those troops. And that's something that we've observed in this conflict. However, uh, the long range radar capability, GMTI that I was talking about in the article and other capabilities like that. I don't think those are being used in, in, uh, And I don't think, um, that we would expect to see those capabilities integrated, even if they were being used. So not the same level of radar informing other munitions about, you know, queuing on. Um, but against a peer conflict, there has been a massive step change. And I think there are two, two interrelated elements to this. Firstly, um, Russian technology in this area, particularly when it comes to radar, is, is not advancing nearly as quickly as Chinese, but Chinese capability is now proliferating throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa. Um, and so we're seeing pretty substantial sales from China around the world. Chinese radar, including AESA radar is uh, very capable. And therefore I would expect to see comparable levels of fidelity in terms of ground tracking um, radar among adversary forces. As we can deploy at scale today, and in terms of what that means for say, an infantier, if you're moving at three kilometers an hour through a woodblock and you have metal on you, uh, and I am paying attention to you as a um, as a radar operator, I, I'm probably able to track your movements. Um, in fact, I mean i' I've played with the gear. I've seen this happen. So um, I'm very confident that your movements can be tracked. And there aren't many things that are metal and move at that speed in dense woodland. So um, it's not like you you disappear in the noise. You you end up you you show up on the screen where you shouldn't be. Um, now at the point where even infantry maneuvers can be picked up at very substantial ranges, um, that doesn't necessarily allow the enemy to target you, but it means that they can very quickly narrow down what's moving and what isn't on the battlefield, and at that point. Uh, start queuing in capabilities like thermal imaging or uavs that have um, electro-optical sensors to identify targets and therefore prioritize munitions Um, and where i think we don't appreciate is we tend to think of precision in terms of in terms of a a guidance system on the munition but if you have that level of understanding of where the enemy is you don't need a particularly precise weapon to be able to bring down an effect on them Um, so when we look at say Russia's artillery capability and the mass of admittedly unguided artillery that they have, um, it's probably accurate enough to catch you if they can pin you down to even a click. Um, So I think there needs to be a pretty careful thinking through about how we do camouflage, how we do deception, uh, what a modern combined force is in terms of Uh, how units support each other to mitigate some of these vulnerabilities, and probably an appreciation that combined arms maneuver, we traditionally think about that as something that you do in the close battle, right? Different arms come together and support each other, and in the deep, or our rear, uh, you're not really combined arms, it's more separated out where you're working through your logistics change. The reality is now you are going to have to function in a much more combined arms integrated way throughout the depth of your operations, because you have multiple vectors of threat uh, at each echelon coming back and i think that that changes our training it changes how we work together um, and it changes the how far out you need to be from the battlefield before you can feel safe Um, which also has pretty significant impacts in terms of endurance uh, in terms of you know the soldier's ability to step back from be pulled out of the line um, and therefore their ability to maintain a tempo of operations
1: is that um, you know? It's a, it's a really interesting point about having to conduct essentially condi- combined arms maneuver um, across the depth of the battlefield. Is that sort of you mentioned the the uh, British military's strike concept and this concept of dispersed maneuver? Is that sort of a centerpiece to it?
0: So uh, strike came out from twenty fifteen as a, uh, a a bit of politics and, and labeling because. Um, you know, the navy had carrier strike. Everyone knows what that is. Uh, the air force had a joint strike fighter. Everyone knew what that was. And the army always suffered because it didn't have. Uh, it had lots and lots of small programs that were all important, but all quite cuttable in themselves. And so, it wanted to kind of conceptualize something that pulled together a package of capabilities in order to secure funding for it. It called it strike. Uh, what STRIKE has promised has been quite controversial and therefore the name is, is uh, something that some people really embrace and some people run away from in the UK now. But the thinking behind STRIKE was that we have a real problem in that we cannot defend against the volume of indirect fire the Russians can deploy against us, which means we can't mass. If we can't mass, how do we uh, achieve a mass effect? Um, And so it became about testing the capacity to maneuver dispersed in, yeah, separated combat teams um, and then essentially never be in decisive contact with the enemy, but instead use that dispersed sensor screen to identify the enemy's axis of advance and then cue on fires so that you start inflicting attrition across about a 60 kilometer depth um, so that by the time the enemy is... Uh, In contact with your more uh, massed formation, your heavy formations, it is suffering attrition across its depth. Uh, It has already lost quite a lot of its critical enablers uh, and it faces a pretty difficult choice, which is it either um, disaggregates its forces to chase down your recce screen or it presses through and and accepts that it's going to be seen and therefore attrited. Um, That's kind of the, the concept behind strike. Uh, we don't have the vehicles that we had envisaged yet uh, to do it, and we certainly don't have enough munitions to afflict the level of attrition that it would uh, that it promises. So I think strike as a concept has been uh, a kind of experimentation of how you might operate, um, but that experimentation has not yet translated into something that we can deploy on the battlefield.
1: You mentioned camouflage. We tend to think of camouflage as something that um, offers protection, uh, from the sort of imagery intelligence component of ISR, something that um, offers concealment uh, from visibility. Uh, there is certainly a sense, I think anyway, from a U.S. Army perspective that we need to kind of rediscover how to effectively use camouflage uh, for that purpose. But, you know, and I, I, I hope I'm inferring correctly, but it almost seems as if you're suggesting that we, we need a, real, a fundamental rethink of camouflage. Is that correct?
0: Uh, so you, you, everyone's heard the phrase, we own the night, um, which I think is something that has been true for the last um, four decades, probably, but was becoming increasingly untrue in uh, Afghanistan as night vision equipment was you know, proliferated and got into Taliban hands. Um, I think we're seeing a similar shift in terms of thermal capability now. And the result is that you know, if you, it doesn't really matter what colour your uniform is at this point. Uh, you have a thermal signature, and that's going to be very, very difficult to suppress uh, for for um, dismounted infantry. You know, and so we've seen what happens when units try and operate without factoring that in. Uh, the Israelis, for example, um, have you know, Flotilla thirteen tried to do a raid into Lebanon. Enemy had some, uh, view imaging equipment that they didn't know about, and all of a sudden. Uh, they took serious casualties. So you know, when we get surprised by it, even even very well trained elite forces um, take casualties. I think now thermal imaging is is cheap and pretty ubiquitous. Um, it's on the civilian market. It's being used for a really wide range of things, and there are thermal sensors on on a huge number of you know basic vehicle types, um, which means that. It's all very well to say, well, that's okay. We'll put up thermal screens when we set up our bivvy or set up our, our observation post. But when you need to go to the toilet, when you, you know, need to go and refill your water and your canteen, uh, when you just need to stretch your legs because you've been in a position for a very long time, unless your special forces in a dedicated observation post, um, those are all moments where you're going to show up and there's likely to be someone watching these days. Um, so I think that's a challenge because when we think about, you know, we do maneuverist warfare, we don't accept attritional exchanges. Uh, that becomes quite difficult when a lot of the uh, advantages that we've used for a long time to achieve maneuver, to uh, outflank, outsmart, you know, surprise our enemy um, isn't going to surprise them anymore. Um, but when it comes to vehicles, it's it's even more of an issue because, as I say, the combination of radar high-fidelity electro-optics, penetrating I-star like UAVs, um, where you really face a choice. Either you are going to engage them uh, and therefore reveal your position, uh, or you're going to let them pass, in which case you are going to be under observation. Uh, And again, we think about, well, we can put our vehicles in a wood block and put camouflage nets over them. We train for that. We've got a good drill for that. That's true. But... uh, I've, I've kind of spoken to the operators who, who do this fairly frequently, you know, drone operators don't have a hard time finding vehicles in woodblocks, um, not because they don't find the vehicle, they just follow the cut, the heavy, you know, lines in the ground that heavy tracked vehicles lead. Uh, and it's it's pretty much a line you can just follow to the end. Um, so that is something where unless you are going to trip that sensor screen and knock it down very proactively, um, then it is going to find you. Uh, and then there's the question of, well, we're back into attritional exchange.
1: So I don't want to ask you about sort of the electronic warfare component of this. You know, our distinguished chair at MWI, uh, retired general Charles Jacoby, talks a lot about how early in his career they used to pretty routinely, um, you know, conduct tasks in the field, um, portions of exercises on with radio silence um, because they had to. Fast forward to the past two decades of of our military involvement in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and you know, there's there's sort of a theme emerging here. That's not something that we had to worry about because we weren't facing an enemy that was capable of exploiting that. Um, so again, is it a matter of getting back to the types of things that we used to do pretty well, the things that General Jacoby talked about doing early in his career when we did face a, uh, a more capable potential adversary, or is the challenge, uh, presented by the modern battlefield today, even greater. And therefore, you know, is there a need, uh, for us to adapt sort of on a different level?
0: I mean, I think we face a real choice here and it's quite a stark choice, um, as you say, we used to be able to do radio silence and massively reduce our emissions. We also used to rely on uh, a lot more unguided munitions. Uh, We used to have a lot more mass and we used to have far less exquisite kill chains. And if you are going to depend upon precision, kill chains, small teams that are able to coordinate dispersed, uh, you know, a lot of those, um, a lot of the resilience of a system that doesn't engage in radio communication breaks down so I, I think there is a fairly binary choice there about do we, do we accept some of the disadvantages of being quiet which also means not being able to change the plan once we initiate what we're doing you know having to see it through um, and prioritizing capabilities that don't force us to talk to each other um, or if we want to pursue the advantages then we're also going to have to accept that we are going to have an electronic signature um and if if we are going to have an electronic signature that is something that our opponents can study monitor and then use and as and it becomes another layer that they are able to employ um in finding us um so i think a lot of the investment in capability and things that we perceive in it are as an advantage actually mean that we would really struggle today to operate r- radio silent as they used to do in the cold war the second thing about that I'd flag is uh, training and safety. Um, you know, in the UK, even among special forces, when they have had uh, training accidents that have led to fatalities, it has generated huge amounts of paperwork. Uh, there is a massive priority to ensure that training is safe, um, and you know we don't we don't train to failure uh, in a way that would accept fatalities. Um, if you are going to be radio silent, especially if you're doing combined arms maneuver, uh, then you are probably going to accept a certain level of um, attrition because you know the, the ability to communicate and for units to keep track of where each other are and to have situational awareness is precisely what avoids problems like fratricide. Um, and so, again, I'm not sure that we have a choice uh, about whether we light up or not. But if you start saying, OK, we are going to light up, we're going to be visible, we're going to maximize the utility that we get from our comms, then it ch- it generates a whole series of new questions about how you do things. Because depending on what you choose to light up and what's critical versus what's a nice to have, um, you can signal quite different things to your opponent. Um, if you are conscious of what your radar, uh, radar signature and radio signature looks like, then you can start... Um, potentially ordering some parts of your force to stay off their comms, accepting that that will reduce their capability precisely because it will generate a blank area in the battlefield, which will generate uncertainty for the opponent. Or you can um, use devices to flood false images uh, in parts of the battlefield. Uh, And and if your opponent has been relying on EW for targeting, you generate more targets than they have munitions. Uh, All of a sudden, their precision kill chain is saturated, and therefore they don't have the advantages that they think they had. Um, All of that's possible, but it has to be really carefully tested and tried. It's not something that, you know, the signalers can go and do. It's something that the whole force, and particularly the commander, has to be really conscious of. Um, A good example of this was, you know, I've seen some little widgets that you can put on on a UAV, and it will go off and generate a tactical command post's signature. But very often these sorts of widgets generate a tactical command post which is not trying to be quiet and the rest of your force is trying to reduce its signature. And so actually when you look at it through a uh, through a set of sensors, it looks really distinct because it's much brighter than everything else and it's emitting more frequently. So if there's that disparity, then your opponent is going to be able to filter out a lot of the decoys that you're using. Um, those sorts of uh, training requirements that you really integrate the EW people into your exercises and understand what your emissions look like, what that tells the enemy, and how you can play a tune on that, not just, I've got to reduce it, um, is a conversation which some parts of the US military is definitely having. But in terms of the cost, uh, and in terms of, as I say, the safety issues, um, there is probably we're not as far down that path as we would like to be in the rest of NATO
1: we've been talking primarily about um, armored vehicles uh, but as you noted the you know infantry formations have also been suffering you know a great deal of casualties during this period of fighting so if if the conclusion to draw from this is not that you know the era of of armored warfare is over is it then something is it that that the the defense is being comparatively strengthened um, by new technologies and new capabilities and their integration on the battlefield or if not what is the sort of key takeaway that you would that you would kind of hold up and say hey this is something that planners um, need to be need to be focused on
0: it's a really good question um because this does tend to get cut up in different ways and one of them is the debate about are tanks dead or not um which is I don't think is helpful because a as you just said the infantry have been having a horrible time of it too and in fact they're vulnerable to more kinds of munitions than the armor Um, the other thing i'd point out is that the way i see this is you're vulnerable throughout your depth of operational maneuver to the battlefield but once you get into the close and you're trying to take a position uh, the old rules haven't gone away you know Uh, it's still going to be really difficult to clear the enemy out And there are very few things that are as capable for doing that as a main battle tank supported by uh, infantry, fighting vehicles, artillery, etc. So so the big question becomes, how do you uh, manoeuvre into contact with your force at a sufficient level of combat effectiveness to take the objective that is set for it? Um, And then how do you sit on that objective without just being persistently attrited by uh, the range of capabilities that are now available to find you and and strike you. I don't think it's really a defense offense issue because, uh, as I say, if you're sitting in a position and it's being watched for long enough, you can start taking attrition from these capabilities while you're in that position. Uh, similarly, if you're trying to attack, then the enemy can strike your depth. And so that that's an issue for both, both ways. Um, the real lesson for me is that there are a lot of capabilities that we either see as you know new and transformative uh, and we need to you know drop things to get them or we see uh, certain capabilities as sunset things that we need to get rid of you know things we can move away from and the reality is it's it's how do we get these people all into the room so that they're working together and so that their capabilities are integrated and they're sharing um, if we think about something like tactical cyber um At the moment in most forces cyber is this uh sort of geeky thing that a few people understand and they go and do their thing in support of very particular special forces operations where they're able to generate something useful some effect uh through a unique piece of code and then you have the rest of the army who are a little bit annoyed that all their senior officers are talking about cyber without being able to explain how it transforms the battlefield But if those cyber guys can actually train alongside uh, the rest of the military and show how they can support operations um, and show that it's not them or the tanks, it's they have to work with the tanks, then actually uh, we can start resolving some of these problems. So a good example of a cyber capability that might be useful is if if I can have them physically penetrate and therefore insert malware into uh, the cell phone network within an area so that I am getting... Uh, or even just the phone system, so that I am getting live uh, mapped data of where c- civilian communications are being engaged and used, um, that becomes ISR, basically. Um, you know, It's a valuable advantage. Um, so if I can plug that into the system and integrate it and then operate in a combined arms way, then I can get around some of these problems. Air defenders as well. Air defense is no longer something that a higher echelon puts in a location and it covers... An area, localized air defence and layers of air defence mean that that capability has to be absolutely integrated into the planning cycle of how a battle group moves around. Um, so I think it's not jointness; it's more combined arms. But it's it's accepting that there are new there are new arms that need to be combined. <laughs> it's it's an old lesson, uh, but it's it's something where a lot of these things we see as either niche or transformative rather than critical elements of the force that have to be played like everything else.
1: Sure. Well, Jack, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could go on uh, quite a bit further, but uh, I trust that this is something that uh, our listeners will really appreciate uh, hearing your perspective about. So thank you very much for joining me.
0: No, thank you very much for having me. And, you know, if any of your listeners want to reach out, you know, in times of COVID, I haven't been able to make it to the States, but it's also, it's always really good to get feedback. Um, So yeah. I, I hope your listeners found it interesting but also um i hope it's an ongoing conversation
1: certainly thanks jack Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And it's a great way for you to get in touch with us. We love hearing from the community of people interested in topics related to modern war. Thanks again.